What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Tomorrow, tomorrow. I love you tomorrow. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Folkebaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be part two of a two-part episode that we had to split up because we ended up talking for a long time. But uh, last time, what were we talking about? It, it was about our, our favorite predictions of the future. Yeah, yeah. we talked about a lot of uh, very quaint French postcards from the turn of the 19th century. Yeah, we Men talk- with bat wings <laughs> hovering <laughs> over the city. 19th Twen- to 20th. 19th to 20th, yeah. yes. Yeah. There you go. And we talked about uh, some uh, driverless car technology. Mm-hmm. Then we talked about how communications doesn't make you less of a jerk. Is that what we talked about? Well, yeah, well, we talked about like uh, <laughs> uh, telecommunications predictions. The the idea of the uh, the rhetoric of the electrical sublime. Yes. The people who thought that you know the telegraph and eventually the internet would just bring us all together and make us connect and just be friendly. We would yeah. friendly if, happy people. If only we can talk to each other instantaneously. It will bring about world peace. And, and then we'll all just click on that little button to buy the world a coke. 
Yeah. And, well, you guys aren't alive in the 70s, so you have no idea what I'm talking about. But I, We all know what By the World of Coke is. Did you, did you ever see those commercials? Were they still yeah. around when you guys were kids? Also, I, it was I like, don't know what you're talking you'd about. Like to, oh, really? I'd, li- I'd like to sing. Okay. I'd like to teach the world to sing I'm in perfect sold. harmony. Yeah. I'd like to buy the world of Coke and no. keep it company. I, I know the polar bears. The polar bears? Yeah, you know, the like polar a bears. Cute little one? Totally. Joe, just talk about robots. Okay. Oh. So, <laughs> uh, so last time we talked about one of the we, – we reached pickling, picking a couple of favorite predictions yes. about the future uh, or at least the most illuminating. I don't know if I could say I have favorites. The ones that are spurring of good conversation. Yeah. And uh, so we did uh, wireless telecommunications and all that. Now I, I want to talk about robots. Uh, so I was trying to think what my other favorite prediction would be. And I think that we, we've talked about this on the show before, but I have to come back to it because I think it's so fruitful. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, the science fiction world embodied in Isaac Asimov's robot stories. And essentially in Asimov's fictional future, robots are very intelligent, powerful, well integrated into society, performing all kinds of labor, Mm -hmm. the the positronic brain. And to keep their behavior in check, they all necessarily are bound by three fundamental laws of robotics. Right. That's kind of like the, I mean, we've seen tons of different science fiction stories that build upon the same idea, like Mm -hmm. even things like RoboCop, where he has all the different directives. Right. That stems from this concept of the laws of robotics. Yeah. And so the three laws basically are a robot, first law, a robot may not injure or harm a human being or through inaction action allow a human being to come to harm. Yeah, obviously RoboCop did not have that one. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second one, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. So, so in other words, you couldn't tell a robot, hey, I want you to go and punch Jim in the face. Right. The robot has to do what you say unless you tell it to hurt somebody. Right. And then the third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. And then there was the zeroth law that got added afterwards, Ah, uh, uh, which is a robot may not harm humanity or through an action allow humanity to come to harm. Right. The sort of uh, the worldwide extension. And they they also would sometimes talk – Extend this not just to humans but to property as well. So in other yeah. words, like like you know, extend it saying that a robot couldn't cause damage to property uh, unless, again, it violated a more important law like further up on the list. Yeah. And so if you haven't read any of these stories, I do recommend going back and reading some of Asimov's robot stories because I think they're very entertaining. They're interesting uh, and they're usually uh, pretty short and Mm -hmm. self-contained. But anyway, the, the dramatic conflict in many of these stories comes from engineers and uh, robo-psychologists trying to solve problems with robots. And the problems are created by the fact that the robots are following the laws, Mm -hmm. but following them in a way that leads to unforeseen problems. Yeah. Uh, So robots with these types of programming can be caught in sort of ethical loops or traps that prevent them from doing something crucial or that allow them to do horrible things by way of misunderstanding or misapplication of the laws. So it's kind of similar, and I think I've made this comparison in a previous episode of Forward Thinking, but uh, for for those of you out there who have ever played Dungeons & Dragons, if you've ever encountered a scenario where your character is granted a wish, you know that any any, uh, experienced player will spend ages agonizing over the exact wording of the wish because... 
dungeon masters the world over have great joy in taking a wish and then purposefully miss uh, interpreting the wish so that a terrible thing happens. So the classic one is make me a sandwich and then boom, the character turns into a sandwich. Like that would be, <laughs> that would be a very simple version of that. But you typically will get someone who has to try and word out an incredibly convoluted wish in order to avoid any potential misinterpretation or, or abuse of their request. Same sort of thing is is kind of underlying some of these stories where it's not that a robot is intentionally trying to find its way around its programming. It's simply that in order for it to uh, carry out whatever task it's been given and follow these rules, something doesn't go as people would expect it to. It's really a cautionary tale about human error and, and hubris. Yes, definitely. And also just the idea of, you know, any sort of artificial intelligence that is sufficiently capable of being able to to be autonomous or even semi-autonomous, it's hard. Well, yeah, that's exactly why I, I cited this. Uh, I cite this because of the increasing interest in the future challenges presented by AI and sophisticated mobile robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're exactly right. You know, The more a machine is in line with what we think of as intelligence in the same way we would use intelligence to refer to human intelligence, the more their behavior and reasoning will become proportionally obscure to us. Right. Like things that act in intelligent ways are sometimes hard to understand because intelligence is inherently complex. I've got a a very relevant example that happened very recently, which was that you had uh, some – people working with a supercomputer over the course of 48 hours to create a mathematical proof that had been uh, proposed back in the 80s. Or at least someone has said, like, I need a proof to prove this, whether or not this particular mathematical problem is possible or not possible. And the computer did it in two days, and it took 200 terabytes of storage to store the proof. And I won't get into the proof. That would take forever for me to explain. But the idea being that... uh, it was so, such a long, laborious process, even for a supercomputer working for 48 hours, essentially, that uh, for people, it was a, pretty much a, a lost cause, right? Like, like you almost have to uh, use a different supercomputer to verify the results because you couldn't employ humans to go through all the steps. It would just take way too long and it and it'd be too easy to lose your place and make a human error and then realize that, oh, well, we've got to have yet another team check the, the results here. And you started getting to this idea, well, this was just to, to do one mathematical proof. And there's not a major downside to humankind if it does something wrong. Right. If, if it <laughs> says that the proof shows that this particular mathematical question is impossible and it turns out it is possible – Big whoop. <laughs> right. But you might have similarly complex internal machinations in a robot that is designed to open a door for people. Yeah. But the robot that's designed to open a door for people could slam the door on people and kill them. So, you know, the, even – well, maybe a, a robot that opens doors for people wouldn't have to be all that intelligent. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Give the full you, general AI to the door opener. You say it, but actually – uh, when I went to South by Southwest, one of the panels I went to, they talked about how there was 
this team that was trying to develop a robot that could open different types of doors, but it would take hours for the robot to figure out what kind of door it was and well, how to open Different types it. of doors. There's yeah. your problem. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you've sure, only got the one door. Then, yeah. If you only got the one door, <laughs> then you're fine. But but as we saw also in the DARPA robotics challenge, like opening doors and walking through them. Yeah. Certainly the walking through them part. Right. Uh, so you know you've got to find a way to prevent robots from causing harm. Yeah. And this causes we got to think about the AI control problem, and it's not as easy as it sounds. And I think this is very well predicted by Asimov's stories, which sure. makes this one of my favorite future predictions because he, he starts with these three laws that if you read them, they sound very simple and they sound very airtight. It sounds like they cover all the bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you only have to think a little bit further, as Asimov did, and start trying to apply them to unexpected malfunctions and use case scenarios. Well, and it could you could also just imagine where it's not even a malfunction. You could just imagine where a robot would take no action because it turns out the robot is able to project all the the potential consequences of its actions and determine that some of them may in fact cause some form of harm to someone and that it's not even necessarily identified, right? It may just be like, well, I took into account the the task you gave me. I plotted out all the variables and it turns out there's maybe a 27% chance that this could hurt somebody's feelings. And because I interpret that as being harm, I can't actually do what you asked me to do. So I'm just going to stand here motionless and you're going to think I'm broken. The the, the chaos effect of robotics, like you've created a very expensive brick and that brick is just constantly thinking like, well, if I open this door... Then, it, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a robot paralyzed by self doubt, essentially, yeah. because it, so we so we're creating a Douglas Adams character. Yeah, you would you would have right to create a threshold <laughs> for the robot, saying you, you have to be above this percentage sure that this action is going to cause some form of harm before you decide not to do it. Yeah, right now, now of course, the application of this to the real world is all. Well, actually, I was going to say it's all assuming we ever create general AI of any consequence. But actually, I think it's not. Even even if we don't, Asimov's stories are interesting for thinking about ethics as they apply to humans. Well, it's also, to I would argue, it's interesting to apply that even if you're talking about narrow definitions of AI, yeah. there's still something to be said about it, – it may not be sentient. It may not be self-aware. It may not have general AI. It may not – it may not be strong. walking around and interacting with us, but it yeah. could very well still affect us in a in a pro, in profound ways. And so, thinking in this case, even for something like narrow AI, I think is important. It is also important when it comes to just our thoughts about how humans behave. I agree. Yeah, uh, but it's it's. Something that a lot of people have been arguing we should be talking about more anyway with the the state of AI as it stands right now, which I, I think everyone would say it falls easily into the category of weak AI. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and we talked about autonomous cars in the last episode. Yeah. You, you start entering uh, when you've got multi-ton death machines uh, with combustible engines in them uh, running around being controlled by weak AI. Uh, you have you have a, a potential future rife with trolley problems. Yeah. 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 That's a very good point. Yeah. Where you get to that situation where uh, an action must be taken and there is no clear action that will prevent harm from some happening to someone. Right. In that, Whether in, it's, yeah, which which someone you choose to cause harm right. to. Right. Would it be the person sitting in the passenger seat? Would it be a, a person outside of the vehicle? Would you it know? be a person in another vehicle? Yeah, right. that whole thing. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, and it also comes down to things that are in conflict in some of those stories where, where like, 
you have a very, very low risk of a major problem in conflict with a compelling need for something petty. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, so like in a driverless car, this might mean, okay, should the car come to a stop every time there is a point zero 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 one percent chance that doing so would prevent injury to someone? I don't know. I mean, what if that means it's coming to a stop all the time and being really inconvenient? So in other words, like let's say that it's um, – let's say that it's a car that has predictive algorithms that can uh, track motion of various uh, entities around the vehicle, yeah. right? So pedestrians, for example, uh, knowing that sometimes pedestrians will walk into the street not at a crosswalk, so it's not a place where they're designated to cross. Well uh, – Autonomous cars will have to be able to deal with that, have to be able to detect that a person has stepped out into the street and stopped. At what point do you tell the car this is indi- an indicator that a person is going to walk out on the street as opposed to this is someone who's trying to step around some dog do that's on the sidewalk and uh-huh. they're not actually going to walk in the street. But their path has diverted enough so that if they were to continue on it, <laughs> they would go out in the street. But that's not what they're planning on doing. If the car thinks you're going to walk out on the street, then it's going to stop. So in that case, a, a really, really sensitive car might kill fewer people in the total. But it will take you forever to get to but where you're yeah, going. But yeah, it might be stopping all the time. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> another uh, psychological uh, science fiction example, there's there's a movie called Robot and Frank that I think I've brought up on the podcast oh, yeah. before. Uh, it's got Frank Langella in it? Uh, it's got somebody. I think you're right. Yeah, it's I think got you're a right. human of some kind or another. I'm pretty sure you're right. I've seen it on Netflix. I've seen that it's on Netflix. I have not watched it. Uh, it's it's cute. Um, it's 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 a fun it's a fun film. It's it's comedic and uh, and and dramatic at the same time. And, sure. and the, the the basic storyline is is that this uh this this elderly man who is a reformed criminal. Um, is is being placed in the care of a of a home care robot, and uh, and the robot can't keep this dude happy. Its directive is to keep the dude happy. Should the robot take him on heists? Mm. <laughs> Hijinks ensue. Yes, <laughs> it's oh. uh, so you know, like like how like like at what point at what point does morality kick in? Yeah, yeah. How do you program a robot to like not take dudes on heists? Assuming that it shouldn't, it gets similar to maybe uh, it should. Right, starts starts also falling into the uh, the plot for Chappie, as well. You've got a, oh, I heard that was terrible. Uh, it's not great, but oh, okay. but it falls into that that same sort of plot. The idea of having a an a robot that is generally meant to be kind of a, a positive uh, influence, and then bad people. Or at least people with bad intentions get hold of the robot and um, and and twist its sense of morality because it doesn't have something innately uh. programmed into it. Mm-hmm. So that like, hey, we we need to survive. So in order for us to survive, we need to be able to do these things, which are technically crimes, and then convince the robot to do those things. Um, Chappie is is kind of uh, a lot of people have have compared it to Short Circuit, <laughs> the Short Circuit movies. I think that's fair. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's not it's not complimentary, but it's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, that about does it for me. Lauren, do you uh, have something you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I also wanted to continue talking about speculative fiction because that is where I tend to live. And uh, I was, in, in thinking about this, I, I was finding it interesting that, that a lot of science fiction and speculative fiction, uh, however you want to say it, centers around those cautionary tales about technology that we were talking a little bit uh, about previously. Um 
you know, the, the, the kind of plot line of like, mankind has created this amazing thing and it destroys him. Right. Possibly from the inside out. <laughs> um, we love that irony, don't we? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's fun storytelling, uh, but, but, uh, take, take Ray Bradbury's work for, for example. Um, excellent work. Um, Ray Bradbury kind of hated technology. His work frequently disdained television and telecommunications in general. In his stories, those kind of technologies made people placid and unthinking and isolated and, and even cruel. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just in his stories. He kind of held the same feelings in real life. Uh, there's a great quote from him from an interview with the New York Times in 2009 where he was talking to them about the possibility of his work being put into ebook format. And he said – it's, it's great all around – he said, Yahoo called me eight weeks ago. They wanted to put a book of mine on Yahoo. You know what I told them? To hell with you. To hell with you and to hell with the internet. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Father of science fiction, y'all. Or like at least one, at least one of the, the crotchety uncles. Of, <laughs> uh, I, th- th- this is a guy who, who he, he didn't drive. He didn't fly on airplanes. Um, and OK, like to be fair, he was born in 1920. And not everyone finds it easy or, or even desirable to adapt to new technology, and that is fine. It is not up to everyone to adapt to everything that goes on in the world. Um, but but this was this was a guy who envisioned like in air communication headsets, mm-hmm. and also ATMs, like earbuds. Yeah, yeah, like earbuds, uh, and also self driving cars, and mm-hmm. also like wall sized flat screen TVs and virtual reality. And he did all of this in the 1950s. Yeah. To, to be fair, though, he thought it was going to be terrible. <laughs> He's like, in, the future is going to have all this stuff. It's going to be it's awful. Oh, yeah. Um, in another interview, um, he, he said, I don't try to describe the future. I try to prevent it. Well, I mean, and, and end time now. In some of the book, in some <laughs> of the books, you can see what he's saying. Like, like in some of his books, you understand exactly what the point is that he's getting at. Like, like Fahrenheit 451. You know, you look, you read that book, and you realize like this is a book that's warning us about anti-intellectualism. It's warning us about uh, turning to. Uh, things like television uh, as a source for information and entertainment and eschewing the idea of books, which uh, apparently magically make you think while television magically makes you not think. I think that's an oversimplification, but you see the route he was going. Uh, yeah, well, and, and we and we still have the, the concept kicking around today that digital communication makes you uh, colder and more, more isolated than person-to-person communication does. Although that's a little bit... That's that's a little bit prejudiced in that it's not taking into account people who are bad at in-person communication, who have, you know, whatever kind of anxiety or, or inability to get out of the house or et cetera, et cetera. It also, it also ignores the trend of urbanization where you get to a point where uh, you aren't growing up in a small – a lot – most people – these days, I should say. Most people are not growing up in a small community where everyone knows everyone else and communication is pretty easy because you already know everybody and, I mean, that's you can't really get around it. Uh, and then you get into an urban environment where you may have potentially millions of people around you. There's no way for you to know everybody. And so the people you know, the people with whom you form relationships may not be people you encounter all that frequently unless you're just hanging out with the people you work with or whatever. Uh, so technology has allowed them to uh, maintain these relationships in a way that they couldn't necessarily do without it. Uh, there was actually a comic strip. I wish I could remember 
who it was that drew this. It was one of those things that you pop, that pops up on a Facebook timeline and I saw, but it was uh, commentary on that very idea where it shows four people on uh, like a subway train and they all had their phones out. And then there's like the one, the one version of the thing saying people today, you know, they want to be on their phones. They don't take the time to bother to communicate with each other. It's terrible. And then there's a flip side of it where it shows what each person is supposedly typing on their phone. And it's all things like, like, I'm going to be home soon. I miss you. Like it's actual messages of love and support to people that are meaningful to them. Uh, it's not that they don't have any care for the strangers around them, but they are communicating. They're just communicating to people who aren't in that space at that time and saying right. it's kind of judgmental to make that broad statement. You could argue that there are trends that perhaps are changing some of our cultural values. Uh, but to make a like a flat statement saying, you know, people care less now because they aren't talking to each other in, in public, uh, I, I think that's – overly simplifying the matter personally. Joe, Joe thinks so too. I'm thinking, <laughs> I mean, I, I get it where like the idea that you are, you can, there are people who use technology as a shield from mm -hmm. interacting with others. Oh yeah. We do it here at work. You put on headphones and that tells everybody, even if you're not listening to anything, it tells everybody, no, the, hey. The main move I'm thinking of is like you're out somewhere and you see somebody you don't really want to talk to. So you pretend to be doing something on your phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually for me, that's when I'm walking home and I just see someone walking the uh, the opposite way toward me on the sidewalk and I'm just like – don't want to have an interaction with this human being. What can I do? Time to pretend to send a text. Yeah. God, I hate saying hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hello is fine. <laughs> hello is fine. Having to have a five-minute conversation on why I don't want to buy your John Wayne Blu-rays, uh, that I don't want to have to do again. <laughs> Just because I was wearing a cowboy hat. That is, by the way, true anecdote. Wow. John Wayne Blu-rays, huh? All right. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was like, I got some Blu-rays of John Wayne, and I'm like, uh, okay. He's like, do you want to buy them? I'm like, no. He says, they're collector's items. I'm like, still no? <laughs> like, like, okay. I, first of all, I could go into a very long conversation with you about why physical media no longer holds any sway with me, but that's beside the point. I'm trying to get home. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway, I wanted to bring all this up just to, uh, as an illustrative point of how um, uh, biased our perceptions of the future can be based on what our current culture and current technological state Sure. Is. Um, yeah. And and to kind of springboard off of that, some of my favorite predictions for the future, predictions in big old scare quotes, um, because they're they're imaginings, really, since they're speculative fiction, are um, like like really like grimy cyberpunk esque visions, like like in the comic book series Transmetropolitan um, by Warren Ellis and the artist Derek Robertson or the novel Snow Crash, which is by Neil Stevenson. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe maybe because I feel like. Things like that are 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 closer time wise and and feel more realistic to me than than futurists kind of sweeping visions about what's going to be going on. Um, in in stories like these, commercialism and personal interests are driving technology forward. This this translates to booms in, in wearable and implantable technology that that keep us constantly connected. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the information industry in these stories rules the world. Not too um, far off from where we are right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Genetics affords the characters upgrades in strength and resilience. Um, can even allow for like X Men style voluntary mutations. Um, and, and 
the lines between humans and their technology are, are blurred, not not quite a race. So not not quite to a point where you would call it the singularity. So, oh, certainly not, uh, and probably not even as far as transhumanism. Yeah. Um, but but but, so, but but bumping up against that that threshold. So somewhere in the squishy meat space before transhumanism. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and and all of these these changes and, and developments um, result in really amazing things. You can you can pop an anti cancer pill, and just never get cancer. Mm. Uh, you can you can spend uh, your free time in vast and beautiful and enriching virtual worlds. You can learn about anything and everything. That mm. um that whole uh, what is it the uh, the rhetoric of the electrical sublime. Oh yeah. That that's that sort of thing. Um, b- but in these stories. It also leads to terrible things, technology. Um, Viral code can threaten your life and your sanity. Um, Viral code, not viruses, yes? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. So you can get a virus, but this is a computer virus. It's it's a brain virus. It's a brain computer virus. Um, uh, Most bodily upgrades in these stories are are considered tacky or vain at best and and are mostly portrayed as just being kind of grotesque. Mm -hmm. Uh, Personal privacy is a complete joke. Uh, the lines between the upper and lower classes are even more stark than they are today. So and you've got like the the haves have way more, and the have-nots have nothing. Sure, and and furthermore, yeah. that the poor in these stories are being told that a virtual life should be enough. Ah, so this is like the chimney sweep poem. <laughs> like you guys are, you guys. I realize that your your real world life is crappy, but if you just stick with it, you're gonna have such a wonderful, wonderful existence afterward. That oh. was essentially the message of the chimney sweep. Uh, it's a, a poem from uh, the the 19th century. In that case, they were. It was essentially the. It was uh, um, specifically criticizing a very particular approach that some uh, Christian ministers were taking when they were talking to the poor, saying. You should just accept your lot in life because if you if you do that and you're a good person, you'll be rewarded in heaven. And the poet in this case was arguing, you're saying this in order to preserve a status quo. You're not actually saying it because you believe these people's souls are destined to heaven. You're saying it because it's convenient to keeping these people where they are in their social and class. if you believe they're destined for heaven, is that destiny dependent on them doing a good job as being huh. a chimney sweep? Right. So, and, and furthermore, is is that really a happy ending? Like, is that a nice thing? Well, and, and here's the problem is that, I mean, I, I remember studying this poem in college and uh, it was a freshman or sophomore poetry class, which meant that uh, and it's technically the chimney sweeper. It's a William Blake poem. Um, And Uh so uh, it was one of those things where several of the students weren't aware of the satirical nature of the poem. They were taking it at face value. And that was problematic. Whereas it sounds like this is probably a more apparent satire. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not saying that this stuff is rad. It's saying that this is a potential problem of the future. It's not mm-hmm. quite a cautionary tale of technology. It's more like a cautionary tale of society, of, of like mm-hmm. where, given these things, society could go, um, especially considering that, that with these stark divides between the rich and the poor, uh, conflict and violence are still thriving mm-hmm. in, in opposition to uh, something something along the lines of like Star Trek, where, you know, certainly there's conflict with with other uh, other alien Races, sure. but within humanity, everything's pretty much sorted out. Everyone's got their basic needs met. They 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 are allowed to pursue any type of activity they want, whether it's something that would be described as a job or just you know you just want to. I just want to sit and think. Fine, fine, that's good. Go You're ahead, great. do it. I want to sit and not think. 
also fine. And and there are still in in those sweepingly optimistic stories like Star Trek, uh, little little side tales, side quests, if you will, about um, about particular groups of people who, for whatever reason, are being oppressed or or mistreated right. in some way. Because yeah. I, I I don't know why. Because maybe maybe because we can't currently imagine a future without people being jerks. Well, and dramatic necessity. Well, well, I mean, but that's what I'm saying. Like, like, does dramatic necessity mean that we like, like, does the fact that a, that a story is boring to us if bad things aren't happening to people, like, what does that say about us? <laughs> that you can't just tell a story where everything is pleasant, there's never any conflict, and then everything just ends fine. That seems like it's not a story. Well, that's what that's that's kind of what Lauren's point is: yeah. is that without that conflict, we don't consider it a story. Well, does that mean that at the very basic core of being a human, we need bad people and bad things to happen in order to define stuff. In order to understand it. Uh, I was was thinking about this when you were talking about uh, Marconi's point about things like wireless technology making things like war ridiculous. And and I found myself wondering whether any technological thing could ever solve war or, or conflict or poverty because it it does seem like at this point in society, at least, uh, distrust and greed, for better or for worse, are are are, are part of the human experience. They're part mm-hmm. of the fabric of our makeup, and and maybe it's just one of those things that I cannot imagine being different from our our current perspective. Um, and I and I don't I don't mean this to be a downer note. It, it's actually an optimistic downer note because maybe some unpredictable technology will come along. That will solve energy or solve uh, empathy, and um, and lead to a kind of utopia. Yeah, I don't know if I can ever see a full utopia. I just see things. Uh, my optimistic vision for the future is one of progressive solving of small problems. I in my optimistic view of the future is that we get to a point where we've already we've already reached the point where we can talk to almost anybody that's continuing obviously not everyone has access to the internet but that is that that the number of people who don't have access to the internet decreases every year my optimistic vision of the future is that we arrive at a day where we're listening to everyone we're no longer just talking to everyone but we can actually listen and at least be able to have that conversation which you could argue gets right back to that simplistic notion of all sit down and talk it out and everything will be fine. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to criticize you for this, but uh, if you just take that literally, just listen to everyone. Well, a lot of the people you're going to be listening to are going to have some really stupid and hateful things to say. But then if you ultimately get at the core of why they say those things, you Mm -hmm. could perhaps address the root issues that are that are producing this in the first place, unless you just come to the conclusion that some people are inherently bad, which <laughs> I have I have a I have a problem with that idea. But I mean, there's some people who certainly behave as if they are inherently bad and give very little indication that they are otherwise. But assuming that you don't buy into that that philosophy, then you could say, let's look at the series of uh, events or the various uh, components of the scenario that are in place that have led to this behavior and find out, are there things that need to be addressed so that people don't develop these ideas or thoughts or prejudices? Because uh, I think more often than not, it comes from a place of 
putting blame on others for a situation that you are in, whether it was justified or or not. So in other words, you might say, I'm not as successful as I should be because those people over there are, begin, are given preferential treatment or I am – I should be guaranteed the place where I'm at. Don't give that other group the same sort of uh, opportunities that I've had because then you're somehow taking away where I'm at. Like you have to get to the bottom of where does that – Yeah, that's zero well, sum I mean you're talking about a particular – you're talking about like group prejudice or something. But there's also – I mean there are lots of ways to have nothing good to contribute. I mean you can also just be like a sociopath who hates people. Well, sure. And and, can, but that's that's – always going to be the case, right? They're always going to be sociopaths unless we Is come it? up with – Huh? Is it? Yeah, maybe not. I mean – I mean if we a... come up with a way of identifying it immediately and then – but then you have a question of how do you deal with that? Do you do something where you're making a fundamental change to someone's uh, neural uh, uh, you know, performance so that they are not going to be a sociopath? At what point does that go way too freaking far? <laughs> like, right, right, yeah. Like we, these are we did a we did a whole other very long episode about yeah, that about not whole too the, long like ago. The moral uh, moral bio enhancements, right, right. yeah. So I mean, there are always going to be outliers. I don't think you're ever going to get a thing where it's going to be universal. But I, I, I at least not that I necessarily think we're going to get to a point where we're all listening to one another. But I think we should always be striving to that. Right, that should be our goal. Even if we have all concluded that that goal, we will never 100 percent be there. To me, it's still something that we have to strive for if we want to continue to improve as just humans. Yeah, I guess the way I would interpret that, maybe what you're saying is uh, making a good faith attempt to understand everyone else's yeah. point of view. Yeah, no, that's if, a, that's that's fair. A fair assessment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If, um, if we could have a technology that would allow people to do that, and uh, I think so easily that it would come as second nature. I, I think it's one of those. I think it, it's one of those things where perhaps uh, we just get to a point where we're able to switch the focus from the technological capability to more of all right. Let's really address the social and cultural issues that are in place that are allowing such things to foster, and really just have conversations about that and really talk about what are the uh, what are the various causes of this um, and what can we do about it? Like are there things that we can – are there problems that we can actually work on solving? Are there some things that are really – it's so you know uh, nebulous that there's not really a way to solve it? And if so, what else could we do? Uh, but then to me, that's not talking about the technology anymore. That's that's talking about people being people um, and, and you know maybe the technology – uh, allows for greater conversations to happen, but the technology itself doesn't doesn't actually make the change. Again, unless we get to that good evil switch in huh. everybody's head, and you right, just make right. sure everyone switched to good. Yeah, uh, no, I I, 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 don't know. I think that that's the that's the point about all of these discussions of of predictions for the future is that whatever future technology we can imagine, people, as far as I can personally discern, are are still going to be people. Yeah. Um. And and it. Technology can slowly change the way that we act and the way that we interact, but I don't think it changes us like intrinsically. I don't think it does either. What I think it would allow us to do is just, uh, ha again, be more aware of what is going on beyond our, our own selves. Um, whether that means that we care 
that's kind of up to the individual, right? That's technology is not going to magically make someone care if a person around on the other side of the world is suffering or not. Uh, even if they see really compelling evidence that that person is indeed suffering. Um, but it, it certainly, it certainly makes more people aware of it. And that's at least the first step toward getting something done. Cause if, if people are unaware, then of course there's no, they're not going to move to there's, fix there's it. Action, yeah, yeah. They can't act cause they didn't know. Right. So whether the ignorance was uh, self-imposed or not. Um, anyway, uh, th- these are this is exactly why we wanted to do these episodes, right? To have these kind of conversations, to talk about these big predictions and big ideas. And uh, there's so many more we could have touched on. Like we limited ourselves to just a couple each because we knew – we didn't know it was going to go over to two episodes. But we knew it was going to be a heck of a conversation. Uh, but we've got so much more to say. Uh, you'll have to tune in next week to hear our, our uh, thoughts. Uh, we've got a very special episode coming up for you guys. So you should uh, tune into that. And, um, guys, it's been great. If you want to check us out on Facebook or Twitter, we are FW Thinking uh, over on Twitter. Search FW Thinking on Facebook. Our profile page will pop up. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.